0: Freedom HealthWorks is the direct primary care accelerator. We help doctors across the country start fresh in direct primary care. With Freedom HealthWorks, you work with a team, not a checklist. Visit FreedomHealthWorks.com and together we can achieve true freedom in direct care. Hi, everybody. Welcome
1: to another episode of Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. And today we are doing a kind of a public service announcement, I would say, around the concept of opportunity costs. Opportunity cost is something that can be a very complex, very difficult subject for a lot of people who don't necessarily have a lot of that investment or business background, but it really is a concept that applies to everyday lives. Joining us today is Dr. Jake DeWitt, a direct primary care physician at Westfield Premier Physicians, just north of Indianapolis and asked him to come on and and talk to us about this type of concept because he entered into medicine as a second career. And it's relatively rare that we encounter somebody like this who has a business background, specifically more of a sales background, and can really understand the concept of opportunity cost as it relates to businessmen and women all over the world, as well as physicians. And we'll get talking about certain things that we call paralysis analysis as that relates to starting up direct primary care practices and really getting off the bench and getting in the game and joining the movement. So, Dr. DeWitt, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure to speak to you.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure.
1: Now, like I said, uh, you come from a very interesting background because you got into medicine in a very circuitous route. Give us a little detail about that and, and why medicine kind of became a calling after your initial career was already launched and relatively successful.
2: Yeah, I'll be happy to take you through it because it is, as you mentioned, it's a bit of a non traditional track. So, um, I initially, years and years ago, coming out of high school, was intended for the, uh, the Air Force Academy. It was going to be a fighter pilot. <laughs> and so, had my packet, was ready to go. My dad got uh, was getting sick, though. And so, um, I ended up kind of pulling back from that and wanted to find work. Um, so I could help out with my mom and, and my younger sisters. And so sort of uh, fell into uh, an opportunity. A friend of mine who was returning from uh, the second Gulf War, he had done army procurement. And he and I kind of started up uh, a federal contracting firm of our own. You would see it from the, uh, the military side. And he wanted to come at it from the civilian side. And so we actually kind of started up a a federal contracting firm out of the back of his mom's cartridge world. And, uh, you know, we spent years together um, and that sort of evolved from what was initially just office supply contracting to the government. Uh, It grew into IT, industrial hardware, medical. It's kind of like war dogs, but without the weapons. It's like the only thing that we didn't do.
1: One of my favorite uh, movies. Very underrated too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I agree. If people have actually asked me about that, asked if I ever got stuck in a desert or anything, you're and we didn't running uh, supply
1: through the uh, the Triangle right. of that, <laughs> in the East.
2: No, well, if we were, it was unbeknownst to me. I, I, I've got plausible deniability. I don't know what my partner <laughs> was doing, but uh, yeah, yeah, we we had a good time with it. The industry, it was you know, it was fun. It was it was lucrative. I got to travel and I met a lot of uh, interesting servicemen and women. Eventually, uh, though, as my dad got sicker and sicker, um, I became more keen on wanting to study medicine. And so while I was still, still kind of had one foot in the federal contracting space, uh, I started pursuing pre-medical study at the Purdue School of Science. And then kind of in the middle of all that, I transitioned from a business standpoint, away from federal contracting into independent consulting. Basically, I went from kind of selling crap to the government to teaching other people how to sell crap to the government.
1: So Um, more of a consultation, um, Advisement role.
2: Yeah. Business intelligence, market research, uh, sales team building, things like that. Basically a number of smaller companies who wanted to enter the federal buying space, but it was kind of an unfamiliar territory because it's kind of a, it's a labyrinth. It can be kind of a quagmire getting into that. But if you know what you're doing, Uh, it can can be pretty lucrative. But fast forwarding from that, I ended up ultimately losing my father while I was still in college. And, um, you know, for me, it was I I knew at that point that I wanted to pursue medicine. I wanted to pursue a career in in healing. So I transitioned out of business and um, went to IU Medical School and went to St. Vincent here in Indianapolis for, for residency. And now I'm here.
1: So like we said, kind of a, an unorthodox way to get into medicine. And these are always some of the, the more interesting um, stories that, that we, we talk about. And nothing to take away from physicians who knew that as soon as I was little, I knew that I wanted to help care for people and take care of people. And that's amazing. We always say that medicine is not a career. It's a calling. How did your experience in that business community, that business sense, whether it was selling things to the federal government, or teaching other people how to do best practices how to how to build their businesses how did that experience influence your decision post medical school post residency when you're looking at different types of models of medicine out there and then you settled on DPC really what was what was the influence again of your previous career on your decision to go into DPC
2: it's a great question and it, it definitely There's a lot of bearing that my business background had on this decision in my time working with different, what I call thought leaders, um, because I was fortunate enough to come into contact with a lot of them, other entrepreneurs and and people of that sort. um, I came to appreciate, you know, opportunity cost and what that means, what that looks like, kind of being able to forecast long-term what certain financial decisions uh, meant and the implications of getting things started at the ground level and moving quickly. I think I developed somewhat of a a tolerance, if you will, to risk. So I'm less, probably less risk averse than a number of younger physicians that are out there. Um, So I think that, you know, that, that certainly helped. I would absolutely, you know, just looking at your material uh, consider you to be a thought leader, I think what you're doing is revolutionary. And so that was a huge driver for me in terms of my attraction to this model of healthcare delivery, was getting to see some of what you've put out, the content that you've put out. Um, and philosophically, it just makes a lot of sense. And so, um, you know, I, I think that for some of my uh, friends or contemporaries who kind of straight-tracked it, high school, college, med school, residency, and they hadn't really done maybe anything professional in between, the idea of opportunity cost is somewhat of a foreign concept to them. And I think that for a lot of them, the temptation, you know, you're coming out of residency, you're hungry, you're, you know, you're eager to see patients, you're eager for to have some kind of a paycheck. <laughs> and so uh, it's very tempting, I think, for a, a lot of my contemporaries to have just signed one of these big system contracts, which often comes along with a very stringent non-compete. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's another thing that my business background got me used to was reading the fine print. Every single word that's written on a contract is written there for a reason. You know, a lot of people they like to sign their end-user agreements every time they get a software update. They, they don't pay a whole lot of mind to the wording, but uh, it, it's, some of that stuff's pretty important. And I now know some people who are at my same stage of career, you know, just coming out of residency, or they're just about to come out of residency. And um, they're already pretty disillusioned. They're already pretty jaded. They're pretty disappointed. And and they're not looking forward necessarily to signing that contract because they've been training in big systems through med school and residency. And so they almost kind of know what's waiting for them and they're not excited about it.
1: It's an interesting concept to bring up. Do you think that those peers that you were just describing – do you think they understand that there's a different way, or they just resolve themselves into thinking, "Well, this is just this is my career now. This is what I have to do. I have to sign this. I can't negotiate anything. This uh, nearly abusive non-competes, non-solicitation agreements that are just over the top." Do people understand? Do physicians understand that there is a different way to do this?
2: I don't think many do, and I, I think it's a combination of things. I think number one you're not getting the exposure to other types of business practice, other types of medical practice when you're in residency, when you're in medical school, even. And some of that, you know, it sounds a little cynical to say, um, and I bear no ill will to, you know, my training establishments, I have very good experiences, but I think some of that's by design. I think a lot of these big academic institutions or these large uh, assist community systems that have been bought out, they are in a way training their future employees. So, you know, when I was interviewing for residency, I interviewed at 13 different programs. And I remember only one program out of 13 that had uh, a business of medicine rotation. And it was only offered, I think, once in the whole four years of, of that program. So a lot of people, they're just, they're not being taught about this stuff. The business of medicine is a foreign concept. And so in a way, it conditions medical students and residents to want to avoid it altogether as this intimidating, etheric, enigmatic sort of quagmire that, oh, will let the billers and coders and, and everybody else kind of worry about that stuff. And I just want to practice. And while that is incredibly noble and I think we all share that, that sort of mentality, the reality and the cruel irony of it is that by then enlisting with one of these larger systems, you're not being enabled or entitled to practice the way you think you're going to be. You have other people telling you how many patients you're going to see a day. You have other people telling you to whom you can refer, where you can refer, how and when you can refer, what tests you can order. You are sacrificing, a lot of these physicians end up sacrificing their own provider autonomy and they end up very dissatisfied and the patients end up very <laughs> dissatisfied because these patients are waiting weeks and weeks to get into a waiting room. They sit in forever and they sit you know with the physician for maybe 15 minutes, which is often an... an insufficient amount of time and they got to come back and repeat the cycle. So a lot of the docs that come through big system medical schools and residencies, which is most of them, they're just not aware that this direct primary care model exists. You know, they think that the days of, of having your own practice in the primary care setting, that those are long since passed. that it's an antiquated sort of romantic notion. But I mean, I get to make it's a little restricted, obviously, because of COVID. but I get to make house calls. Like I never thought, going <laughs> through med school and residency, that uh, that I was going to get to make house calls. I had a patient the other day. He's on home dialysis every night, and he was a little bit hypotensive. You know, his blood pressure was a little bit low the next day, and we had talked to him. And you know, I got to bring him some Gatorade and some chicken noodle soup. Uh, you know, to to his door. And That's so, fantastic. Uh, it's, it's just stuff like that. I mean, I, I had another patient just a few days after that who uh, we evaluated in a nursing home. And I got to call in her medications. There's a local delivering pharmacy here, but it was after the cutoff. So I then, after calling, after evaluating the patient, calling in the meds, I then got to go to the pharmacy and pick up the meds and then take them back to the patient physically. Hold the bottles in my hand and explain them to her. Instead of having to rely on a pharmacist or, you know, a series of other phone checkpoints to explain this stuff to her. And I got to talk to her caretaker as well in the nursing home to make sure that she was going to get everything she needed in the right way. I mean, that, that those concepts, like I never would have thought just a few years ago, that was even possible to do stuff like that in a lucrative practice.
1: It's the, it's the countermeasure to the saying ignorance is bliss. Uh, in this right. case, ignorance is, it has a real cost and that cost is, you know, the potential future careers of some of the best and brightest in our communities who we are going to rely on to take care of us uh, when we're old and frail or sick and and uh, maybe just needing somebody to, to talk to and, and ease our minds. So going back, you know, this concept of opportunity cost, and, and for anybody out there who's, who's unfamiliar with this, it's very simply, it is the return on whatever you choose to do, less the return on the option that you chose not to do. So, not just an investment term based on securities or stocks or business deals. It's also a concept that applies to how you choose to spend your time. And we see this from a Freedom Health Work standpoint when, you know, people are looking at physicians are looking at starting up a practice and utilizing some professional help to make that transition or transform their practice at a very quick pace and do it right and build a solid foundation versus do it themselves. And, you know, just this past week, we've had two more physicians who called us up and said, Hey, my, my DPC practice has failed because I tried to do it myself and nothing worked. And, you know, that's really heartbreaking, but there are those intangible things that go into it because there's not always a clear cut choice between option a and option B. So Dr. DeWitt to bring you into this uh particular conversation, you know, what do you say to doctors who haven't had that same type of experiences you had from a business standpoint and understanding these concepts that every decision has a consequence? And if you choose to go out and try to do something and take the long path, it's not necessarily the best path um, because you chose DPC very quickly and knew what you wanted to do. You know, what was kind of going through your mind and then how do you translate that into those conversations that you have with your peers who are asking you questions about if that's a good fit for them or what they should do and along those lines?
2: Well, I would say a couple things to them. The first thing I would say is that it's understandable. You know, physicians are very headstrong and they can be very stubborn. And we are conditioned through a very, very lengthy training process which is not only a massive time sink but it's a huge financial investment i mean <laughs> my my friends and i in medical school by the end of med school you just start talking about your student debt in terms of monopoly money when you're talking about taking extra loans for interview expenses you're like sure whatever <laughs> i already owe a third of a million dollars plus you know like i'll because you know my wife and i especially we took a lot of extra loans for daycare for our, our two young children And so, you know, what's an extra couple thousand year, couple thousand year? I mean, you just, you learn (laughs) that being in that hole is just part, part of it in in large part. And a lot of folks that come out of college with undergraduate debt too, that gets bundled in with that. And the same thing with time. I mean, you know, you look at the average position track and you've got your four years of college, maybe more if you did a master's, four years of med school, at least three years of residency typically. Uh, And then you might see, you know, if you subspecialize, you're looking at fellowship as well. So you're looking at, you know, at least a decade and a half that you've sunk into, into higher education. And so by the time you get out, I think that for some of the physicians that want to just kind of take the long path, figure things out for themselves, do it on their own, there's almost this sort of psychological callus that gets built up around the concept of, oh, this is gonna cost you more money than you need to spend, or this is gonna take more time than you need to spend. Because we're just so used to giving up our years and giving up our, our time and, and taking out those loans and going further and further into debt. Um, so I would just have them sort of take a look outside of themselves, kind of zoom out, and get a more macroscopic perspective and, and realize that you should do it the other way. Because you've already spent so much time and gone into so much debt to get to where you are post training whatever you can do to accelerate your career like enlisting the help of Freedom Health works a, you know a proven accelerator for getting people on their feet with their own practices that's a very wise decision you can make and you'll just get to start seeing patients faster and you'll get to take care of people in a more cost-effective value-added sort of sort of way the other thing I would say is, you know, in medicine, we talk a lot because over the years, everything has become so siloed into specialties. You know, you especially in like a major academic setting, you know, you might have one specific radiologist or group of radiologists that they're not just looking at images, they're looking specifically at lung images. You know, it's kind of like we, we've divided everybody up into these subspecialties and even sub and things like that. And you see that more and more when you're in major metropolitan areas or academic settings. And so what we would often tell ourselves if we felt like, you know, tempted to color outside the line, so to speak, like, oh, I think I know what this is. I don't need to refer this on. We would have a lot of our staff physicians and and attending physicians and trainers tell us, you know, be safe. That's the most important thing you can do as a young provider, trainee or really any provider. Be safe. You don't know what you don't know. And stick with what you do know, and you can always try to look up things you don't know. Sure, and you can consult people that know more about something than you do. But you're taking an unnecessary risk when you color outside the lines and when you try to do something that you're not completely comfortable with. And it's very similar when it comes to starting a practice. I say that I would say there's uh, an entire, you know, analogous paradigm when you're looking at starting your own practice. If you are hitting the street day one and you're looking to explore contracts with lab providers and you know EMRs and all that kind of stuff you can certainly do that but if that's not a space that you're familiar with if those types of contracts are not something you've negotiated in the past then the best thing you can do for yourself for your business for your career and then ultimately for your patients because it's going to free up your time to take care of them is to ask for help it's to enlist the services of an accelerator like freedom health works Who's going to say, "Look, we've already got blanket purchase agreements. We already have arrangements with this vaccine company, this lab provider, this pharmaceutical, you know, dispensing firm." So that really all you're doing at that point is building your patient panel. You will not have to worry about anything else. So those are the things I would say to them initially.
1: Going back to the concept of you don't know what you don't now. Hey, doctor, we're going to pause right there. Hear a message from our okay. sponsors, and we will be right back with more Healthcare Americana.
0: New Era Health Plans brings a unique solution to health insurance. We offer private insurance that allows you the freedom of choice of any doctor, any hospital, anywhere. New Era offers modern, flexible health insurance, life and supplemental, Medicare and education resources. We are a national agency licensed in most states. New Era emphasizes educating our clients and helping people make smarter decisions that deliver value and peace of mind. Our plans allow our customers to save 25 to 50% each month while providing transparent health benefits at a price that actually makes sense. New Era Health Plans is committed to providing the best service to self-employed business people, individuals, and families. We are an endorsed vendor of the Free Market Medical Association and believe in the power of free market medicine. For more information, visit NewEraHealthPlans.com. New Era Health Plans, modern, flexible health insurance plans. New Era Health Plans, Inc. is an independent field marketing organization representing Philadelphia American Life Insurance Company.
3: Health insurance premiums are rising faster than actual medical costs. And employers everywhere are struggling to keep their heads above water and take care of their amazing team. Most people will never meet their deductible in a given year. So shouldn't there be an alternative to health insurance for people who don't really need it? At Custom Benefit Solutions, we build better benefit solutions by pairing local, direct primary care options with affordable medical cost sharing plans. This creates affordable options for America's small businesses. These companies are able to save money and provide an actual primary care doctor that'll take care of your employees and their families. Employees enjoy getting the care they deserve without struggling with confusing co-pays or deductibles. Want to learn more? Go to custombenefits.org and talk to a team member today. Custom Benefits Solutions. We solve for care.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to Healthcare Americana. I am your host, Christopher Habig, joined today by Dr. Jake Dewitt. Dr. Dewitt, we were just talking about uh, the opportunity costs and 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 what that means as far as you know direct application towards direct primary care. And you were just talking about how you know medicine is very siloed and it's okay to ask for help essentially you know in a very simplistic manner and people should ask for help because we can't do everything you know all all at once wanted to you know put this concept out there and get your thoughts on it but this concept of what we call analysis paralysis and that comes up most of the time within the dpc community when somebody starts tries to start their own practice and weeks, months, potentially years drift by because they get distracted trying to you know, keep their career going, whether it's an employed position or family obligations, and they just can't do everything themselves. They're trying to boil the ocean. That's frustrating. You know, that, that is very frustrating because as anybody in this direct care movement will tell you, we need this to be physician-led. So I want to get your thoughts on this concept of this, this analysis paralysis and really how you overcame this to move as quickly as you did going from your residency program into a DPC practice. Now you were hired into a DPC practice, but you were ready to start your own right there. If if the employment opportunity didn't didn't work out, so I just wanted to set the stage and give everybody the the transparent facts. But you know, really, what was that difference that let you move so quickly, where so many physicians get bound up in this decision making process and then end up doing nothing?
2: Yeah, I appreciate the question. You know, so I, I found pretty quickly during residency that for me the most rewarding facet of medicine involves direct patient interaction uh preventative health continuity of care I mean, those are kind of the tenets of of the way I wanted to practice medicine and the things that were most valuable to me and it may not be that way for every provider um, it takes all kinds you know you get very different personalities and very different specialties um, but I knew that connecting with patients and building that trust and having as much time with patients as possible is what I wanted. So when I first learned about this model, which again is not something you hear a lot about or about at all in medical school uh, or residency, which as a quick aside, I now know of a number of staff physicians at my former medical school and my former residency who are either exploring this model or have left uh, their former employers and are now already in the process of building their own practice. I found this model I thought you know this is a breath of fresh air this is exactly the way I always hoped medicine was going to be when I first decided to pursue it but it was also this model is the type of model that I quickly in a sort of disillusioned fashion thought could never exist coming from big system you know healthcare. care uh, and there's a reason that major healthcare systems are you know buying up all the all the primary care clinics they can and have taken over a lot of those territories you know, this isn't a direct critique against them in any way, but I don't think it's out of some greater sense of altruism as much as it's, these are businesses now, these large healthcare systems are businesses. And they saw the opportunity in coming into the space because roughly 80% of persons' health needs can be met in a primary care setting. That's the whole point of primary care. It's why it's called primary care. (laughs) And so being on the front lines of someone's health being able to engage in shared decision making conversations with them, having the freedom to refer them to whomever I'd like, because we're not beholden to any system, we don't belong to anybody. All of those were incredibly attractive to me. I also love the idea. And as you mentioned, I I was very fortunate because right when I was looking to start my own, um, I was recruited, I guess you can say, I I found that there was a group that was looking to hire an additional partner over here at Westfield Premier Physicians. And I, you know, I love the partners that I'm with. It's a perfect fit. So I was lucky because it was already an office that was established, but I also know several others who are now looking at at starting their own. And I think that just getting to see it up close for me when I came in and shadowed, uh, it was remarkable it was remarkable what I saw because in our practice in particular, you get 24 seven access to a provider because it's a few of us together. We sort of rotate, you know, the call phone, which primary care call is very different than previously for, for other specialty and high acuity services. Um, so it's not very taxing on work-life balance, but we're able to get people in same day. We're able to give people an hour and a half for their annual appointments instead of 20 or 30 minutes. People get unlimited visits with no additional cost to them. And every direct primary care office is going to be set up a little differently based on how many providers they have and and staff and, and that sort of thing. But when I got to see it up close, Chris, I'll tell you, I mean, it was, there was no question in my mind. There was no question in my mind that taking all the fluff out of the middle, every additional link in the chain represents an elevation in cost, represents some other system or some other employee that's going to take revenue that's going to have to be paid to do what they do. And I was shocked when I looked at the numbers, just how surprisingly affordable primary care can be in this country. We talk all the time about how we spend more money than any other developed nation on healthcare, but we don't have the best outcomes. And part of that I think is just culturally, we're not geared as much toward preventative health as we should be. But it's also because we overcomplicate our healthcare system. Somebody that has insurance, they pay their premium. They have to meet their deductible. They may not even know who their doctor is. Some doctors are approved, some aren't. They might wait a month or more to get in with the doctor to establish, sit in the waiting room for a half hour, get 15 minutes with that doctor because they're one of 30 patients on his or her schedule. And then they still have a copay on their way out. It's ridiculous. It's way more expensive than it needs to be. Yeah. So this model for me was perfect.
1: Now, let me ask you, when you made that decision to said, you yep, I'm going into DPC and I'm going to start my own practice up. And, um, you know, as a client of Freedom Health Works, what was that decision making? Um, was there a time where you looked at just doing this yourself versus enlisting a group such as Freedom Health Works to help? It was,
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought about it. Um, and, you know, some of that I think was, kind of sparked by my own entrepreneurial background a little bit with what I've done in consulting and federal contracting. And so um, I guess I was maybe a little less intimidated by the prospect of being out on my own. But that being said, and this is what I would say to any, any providers out there who may be on the fence about this, is that even having had a background of contract negotiation, market research, business intelligence, on and on, all the things that I've done for, for seven years, I recognized quickly that enlisting an accelerator or partnering with with a group that already had an accelerator on board was going to pay dividends because it was just less time and less money that I was going to have to invest on my own to to reach the same goal. And so now, I mean, I've been here with Westfield, you know, for just over a month or so. And I've already built up, my own panel, I've already got 20 patients of my own in addition to being able to, to help my partners uh, see their own patients if we have, you know, acute visits or add-ons throughout the day, which is wonderful. We make a great team. But yeah, I, I thought about it. And I'll tell you, Chris, we talked about opportunity cost earlier and how that's a foreign concept to some folks that haven't had a background in business. Another concept that I think is foreign to a lot of, you know, providers that may not have ever been involved in business or study business is the idea of purchasing power. And so when you look at freedom, you look at what an accelerator like your company does, because you have a number of providers whom you represent in your client cohort, you're able to negotiate much better pricing for the EMR, the billing software, you know, the patient communication platforms, the vaccines, you know, the labs. We have very good relationships with who we use, but if I were to do those things on my own, I wouldn't have gotten the same pricing from some of these other providers that, that you've sort of bundled into your platform into your package. So I, I recognize that pretty early on.
1: Yeah, some good concepts coming out of there. Uh, another one I would, I would throw at you is time is money.
2: Yeah and if anybody has
1: uh, you know done their own practice and they're a year or two and they're still not opening their doors, that's costing a lot more money than you know any yeah. potential hiring of any type of expert out there. And so, again, that folds right. into the opportunity costs. Um, kind of a parting question here. Get your thoughts on this one. What do you say to patients who come in who have Googled their symptoms and think they know exactly what's wrong with them and then start asking you about it? What are those conversations uh, like?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, we're actually where I went uh, for residency, so I matched into, into OBGYN, to into Obstetrics and Gynecology Residency, one of two programs here, here in the state of Indiana, and You get a lot of very, in obstetrics, you get a lot of very concerned parents or soon-to-be parents, and um, they want to know everything that's going on with baby. And, you know, can I really eat that banana if it still has a little bit of green on it? It's not 100% ripe. What's that going to do to my kid's kidneys? Uh, Which nothing, by the way, for anyone watching this podcast, nothing happens to that baby's kidneys. So what I would often tell patients, and I would say this in medical school too, is that the nice thing about the internet is that virtually anybody can access it. The dangerous thing about the Internet is that virtually anybody can access it. So, uh, you know, a lot of folks, they get information that may not be well qualified, uh, information that is uh, not representative of overall data or overall trends. You know, For example, I put in a lot of uh, intrauterine devices for contraception during training it was shocking to me how many patients came in and they're like, well, I don't want to be one of, you know, three or four people that gets a hole in their uterus. It's like, that's really not the rate, you know, it's, it's more like one in a thousand or fewer, but you know, if someone goes to the doctor and they get their Mirena IUD and everything goes the way it's supposed to, they're not going to get on the internet and blog about how normal their experience was, (laughs) you know, it's the people that have, it's the outliers, people that have bad experiences. Uh, kind of on the fringe of the data, are the people most likely to post things. So I I would just tell anybody out there that that doesn't mean you shouldn't get on the Internet and look things up. Uh, But a couple of recommendations I would have. One, you know, is to have open communication with your physician about what you read if you have questions. I think we have gravitated from a more antiquated paternalistic model of medicine to more of a shared decision-making model, or at least we should be gravitating to that. And so, you know, a lot of providers out there are willing to have those conversations versus just saying, no, you're supposed to do this because I read, you know, I read books and stuff you know, years ago. <laughs> but the other thing, too, I would say is that when you're looking at information, do the best you can to make sure it's from a qualified source, you know, as opposed to just a Reddit thread or something. That's not a slight against Reddit. It's just if you go to like Mayo Clinic's website, Cleveland Clinic's website, Some of these actual healthcare institution websites, you're going to get more comprehensive information that's more evidence-based.
1: Yeah, so it's important to be an informed patient,
2: but don't let
1: the internet be the source of everything you do or know. And, you know, obviously there's a parallel and... that's always that's always fun trying to help a, a physician, you know, explain why certain things that they read on the internet on a checklist or something didn't exactly work. So, you know, there was a point to me asking that question. We love informed people. We love the most educated person possible, but uh, doesn't necessarily mean that everything on the internet is true. And that's a tough concept. I get it. I get it. Yeah. You know, I was, gosh, Wikipedia was a big when I was in college and everything I heard from, from professors was, Wikipedia is not an academic source. Right. People use it differently <laughs> these days, you know, but uh, just keep that in mind, right? As, as people go forward here. Well, Dr. DeWitt, thank you so much for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time to talk about these relatively advanced concepts uh, that a lot of people struggle with from day to day in a decision-making capacity. So always appreciative of your insight. Best of luck of the new practice. Keep up that growth
2: thank you, Chris. Thank you very much. Congrats again on your new, uh, your new addition to the family.
1: <laughs> I do appreciate that. Three months old already. Can you believe it? Well, that's it, it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. Thanks for listening. To learn more about direct primary care, visit freedomhealthworks.com. To check out all of our episodes and visit our sponsors, visit healthcareamericana.com. Again, thanks for listening. Until next time.
3: Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org.
0: There comes a time when the man of the house must take charge. Family planning is a tough conversation for many. And at Happy Dad Vasectomy, we understand that decision isn't easy. When your family is complete, our no needle, no scalpel, no stitches procedure will give you peace of mind about your family's future. Happy Dad Vasectomy conveniently books appointments within two weeks of calling and has locations in central and northern Indiana. Visit happydadvasectomy.com to learn more. Happy Dad Vasectomy, the easiest part of family planning.
2: Healthcare can be complex. If you're managing a chronic or life-threatening illness, Patients Rising is here for you. We built the Patients Rising Concierge to help you navigate stressful health decisions and get the support you deserve. You will find personalized support by calling, emailing, or visiting our website, Our team is standing by to help with your unique situation. Find the help you need today at patientsrisingconcierge.org.
1: Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry, and we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.